book of Colossians, and we're being chapter one of, of Colossians. And I will be reading from verse 9. Now, our text is verse 12 and 14, but obviously I want to read the full context of it. So in verse 9, we read this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks, our text, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for this great privilege that we have to come and stand under the preaching and the ministry of the word. Lord, you speak to us through your word and and your word is sacred and it is It is pure, it is undefiled, and it is true. Oh God, give us hearts to understand and ears to hear, minds to perceive, that we be humble and be instructed by your word. Oh Lord, teach us, Holy Spirit. And we pray, dear God, that through this time of ministry, that we would be refreshed, sanctified, and renewed. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would Work in my mind, overshadow me, use me as a vessel for your glory and your honor. I use my tongue to speak forth your excellencies, and may you be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father is how our text begins We only are looking at two verses today, only two verses, but yet in these two verses, we have a wealth of spiritual treasure within this context. It's related to the prayer that Paul is offering. The prayer begins in verse three, and it opens as a prayer of thanksgiving, and then moves along to a prayer of exhortation in terms of what prayer is, uh, what Paul is praying for the church. And in the context of verses 9 through 14, Paul is praying specifically for the church's sanctification, for their growth. He's praying that that they would be uh, strengthened and that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and that they would live a life pleasing to God, that their life would be worthy of the Lord, that it would be fruitful in good works And in light of all of these requests for Paul's prayer for them, he also prays that they would be giving thanks to God the Father. Giving thanks to the Father introduces us then to the fourth participle and quality that pleases 
the Lord. In fact, what this is telling us is that having a life characterized by a thankful heart is the crowning virtue of a life pleasing to God. While there are many reasons why we can thank God the Father, Paul tells his readers to be thankful for four specific reasons. There are four mighty acts of the Father that we're to give thanks for. We're to give thanks for one, qualifying us to an inheritance, or two, delivering us from the darkness, three, transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, and four, redeeming us and forgiving us of our sins. And all four of these great mighty acts of the Father are related to one another and work in tandem with each other and speak of the great salvation. As I said, these are only two Bible verses, but there's a lot contained in it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says of these verses, this passage is a mine of riches. I can anticipate the difficulty in preaching and the regret in concluding we shall experience this evening because we are not able to dig out all the gold which lies in this precious vein. We lack the power to grasp and the time to expatiate upon the volume of truths which is here condensed in a few short sentences. And so I have but 45 minutes to do so myself. And with that said, I want to begin by pointing us to this idea of being thankful to God. He is, he is the God, the Father, and, and, and Paul directs us to be thankful to God, the Father, not God, the Son, or the Spirit, because we are told in Scripture that he is the Father in whom every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17. He is the Father who gives life to all and breath to those that walk the earth. He feeds uh, the deer their portion in due time. He sends water upon the earth. And so we look to God with an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. And so the first thing we want to thank God for today in, in, in mind of living a life pleasing to God is to thank God for qualifying us to go to heaven. That's the first reason, giving thanks to God for qualifying us to go to heaven. And I want to begin with this question today. Are you fit to go to heaven? Are you suited to go to heaven? Now, clearly we ask that question when we evangelize down on the streets. Uh, one of the questions we ask people, uh, uh, do you believe you're going to heaven? We have a gospel tract that says, are you going to heaven? Now, most people, if you ask them that, they will say, yes, I'm going to heaven. The majority of people think they are going to heaven because they believe in the doctrine of justification by death. And believe everybody's good and that when you die, everybody goes to heaven because everybody's good. Unless you're Adolf Hitler and every, or Vladimir Putin, you're going to go to heaven. You're a good person. But clearly that is not what scripture teaches us. Um, the word qualify there, it says that God, we thank God the Father for qualifying us, qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The inheritance of the saints of light is, 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 can be interpreted in one aspect of the eternal life, the heavenly life that we experience now, but ultimately when we, when we die and pass through this life into God's presence. But what qualifies us? You see, reality is not only are we unqualified for heaven, we are disqualified for heaven. Now, there, why am I parsing words here? What's the distinction? 
Well, to say you're unqualified for something means that you lack a certain skill or experience or education to be fit or suited for the call. So if I'm applying for a job as a computer scientist and I lack the skills and I lack the education and I lack the background to be suited for that job, I am considered unqualified. I am not qualified for that position. But with the term unqualified, it means that you could do something to improve your circumstances. You can get the training, you can get the job, you can do better to qualify yourself for the position. But we are not merely unqualified for heaven. If we were just unqualified for heaven, then we could do something about it. We could improve our state. But we are disqualified. We are disqualified. To be disqualified means that you are morally unworthy or unfit for the position. You are unfit. You are unsuited. And so when we talk about disqualification, we think in terms of maybe someone who is a pastor or an elder. If there's a great moral uh, um, uh, blemish in that person's life, we are said that they are disqualified and they are to step down and abdicate that role. And in this way, we say not only are we unqualified for heaven, but we're disqualified. We're morally unfit. We're not suitable. We're not sufficient to be in God's presence. And this brings us the reason we're to be thankful is that because while we're unqualified and disqualified, it is God alone who qualifies us. And that is because it is not something that we do that allows us to have merit with God. It is something God has done for us. It is God who qualifies us. It is God who makes us worthy. It is God who makes us fit. It is God who makes us sufficient. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. We cannot under, underestimate, we cannot uh, underexpress the importance, the vital importance of the imputed active obedience of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means when we come faith to faith in Christ, we are justified. We are not merely forgiven of our sins, but the righteous record of Jesus who perfectly obeyed God's law is imputed and credited to us by faith. We are made righteous in Jesus Christ. You need that righteousness to go to heaven. When Jesus gave the parable of the wedding, of the wedding feast, and there was one who was found without wedding garments. He says, what are you doing here? Get out. You don't have wedding garments. The wedding garments are the righteousness of the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, clothed in white linens. And unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you are unfit, you are unsuited, you are unqualified, and you are disqualified from heaven, from being in God's presence. But to understand the concept of this share or inheritance, this term comes up over and over in the New Testament. It's rooted in, in Old Testament imagery. The word share and inheritance are two Greek words, meris and kleros, that overlap in their meaning. And they both mean share or portion and are used as parallelism several times in the Greek translation of the New Testament. Now, the background is very important because whenever you talk about share or inheritance, it's always related to Israel coming into the promised land. It was God who promised Abraham uh, uh, three things. He promised him, A, that you would have a son and, and through him you would have a seed that could fill the whole 
world. He would see it as, as numerous as the stars in heaven, as numerous as the sands on the earth. So will be your descendants, Abraham. You will have a son. And through, through that seed comes another promise. Through that seed will come blessings to all the nations. And then finally, he says, I promise you the land of Canaan. It's yours and you will settle that land. And, and in Genesis 15, we see when Mo, uh, Abraham goes into a, 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 almost a trance when dreaming and as he has a vision of God and, and God tells him it'll be about 400 years before your descendants come in. And what happened 400 years later, exactly, uh, we see that God raises up Moses, the people of Israel living in slavery, they're living in bondage and Moses is used by God to deliver the people of Israel and they come into the promised land, the very land that God promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they inherit the land, they inherit. It was their promise, it was their inheritance. It was given to Abraham and they inherited by virtue of their relationship to him. And that land was distributed among the 12 tribes. Each tribe got a share. They got a lot in that inheritance and they had to fight and they had to conquer in order to inherit the good land. But is that all God is concerned about is land? You see, the nation of Israel was indeed a fulfillment of God's promise, but it was, it was only the beginning of God's program for salvation. God's program was much bigger than just the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. It, it encompassed all the nations. It encompassed all the world. And it wouldn't be till the ultimate realization of a seed, the Son of God, Christ, came into the world. And through the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed and come to faith in God. And so indeed, the seed of Abraham is numerous, for we are all sons and daughters of Abraham. We're linked to him because we have the same faith of Abraham. But what about the land? What about Israel? Well, look with me in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews eleven eight, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Make no mistake about it. Canaan was, was the type, but the anti-type, the fulfillment was much more. It was the city with divine pillars. It was the city whose founder and builder is God. This is, this is speaking of the celestial city. It is speaking of the new Jerusalem, which spiritually encompasses all the people of God. In verse 13, it says this. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Isn't that true? Abraham didn't, didn't live to see the day where his descendants would fill the land. But it says, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. And if they were thinking of the land from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. You see, this inheritance is much bigger than the land of Israel. 
It is the heavenly city. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and new earth. It is what God has prepared us for. It is the very thing which we've been called. This is what we've been destined for. This is our lot. This is our share. And God has qualified us for it because prior to, we were not qualified. We were disqualified. Not only were we Gentiles, most of us here, who, who were alienated from the commonwealth of God, but we were dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies of God. And he qualifies us to be part of this inheritance. I want you to think of this. This inheritance must be seen as not just heaven itself, but who heaven contains. You see, we miss the point if we think that heaven is just this idyllic place that we will just simply rest forever and and be free from all pain and suffering. If you could have heaven but not have God, would you have it? You see, we don't realize that heaven is the throne of God. It It is the place in which God dwells. And so the idea and the concept of heaven and eternal life cannot be divorced from the presence of God. You see, of all the tribes of Israel, there was one tribe who had no lot and no inheritance. They did not get a parcel of land, and that was the Levites. You know why? Because they had a greater inheritance. In Deuteronomy 10.9, it says, Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers, for the Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Ah, isn't that the great inheritance. Isn't that what it's all about? First Peter 3.18, it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. That is the whole point of salvation. It's the whole point of the Christian message. It's not to have a better life. It's not to be happy. It's not so you can enjoy more of, 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 of a life that is is free of care, but, but it's to bring you to God. This is the true portion, inheritance of the one who's truly been converted. To understand that life's not bound up in what you have, but who you know. Psalm 73, Asaph, the writer of the psalm, was a man who was driven almost to despair If you read Psalm 73, it's a man who's in despair because he looks at the world full of people who don't believe in God and they seem to prosper and succeed and they have it good. And he says, why is it that those who hate you do so good? And why is it that those who love you are suffering? And he couldn't get his head around it. He couldn't comprehend it until it says, finally, I came to my senses when I entered the temple of God. When he came into the presence of God, he came to his being and he said, oh my goodness, I was on a slippery place. I almost slipped. I almost lost my way. And then he realized, he realized he had something more than all the people in the world. Although he might be a poor man, although he may lack a, a, a country, he may lack a home, he may lack love, or he may lack a family, or he may lack a job, or whatever you lack in life, you are still have Great treasure untold. Psalm 73, 25 says this, who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
the presence of God. This is, this is what indeed is our chosen lot. In Psalm 16, 5 through 6, David said, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Do you have a beautiful inheritance this morning? Do you realize that you've been qualified to this great inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in the light, the holy ones of God called out of this world who reflect the light of Messiah? You've been qualified. If you've been qualified, then you have reason to thank God. I hope to quell any ingratitude or murmuring spirits today as we look to the things we could be thankful for. The second thing we could be thankful for that God has delivered us from the darkness of this world. God has delivered us. It says here in verse 12, giving thanks to the fathers, qualify you to share in the inheritance of the saints' light, and he has delivered you, verse 13, from the domain of darkness, the domain of darkness. What does that mean? The word domain can be translated as authority or power. I believe it is the King James Version that speaks of the power of darkness. I want you to think about that. The power of darkness. Darkness is powerful. It's a realm. And it's a realm where the prince of darkness rules. And the prince of darkness is none other than Satan himself. It is the rule and reign over this world. For 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world is under the sway or the power of the evil one. This darkness is both metaphoric and real. When we speak of darkness, it is metaphoric in the sense that it means ignorance. Primarily means ignorance. When you talk about those who are in darkness, it means those who are ignorant. They don't understand the truth or they're, they're, uh, on, on, they ha- on, they're not realizing what is real. They're, they're in the dark. But isn't that the case of all those who do not know Jesus Christ? Isn't that the case of those who live without Christ in their lives? Second Corinthians 4, 4 tells us, That in their case, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, that's what Satan does. He, He blinds the minds of unbelievers and he keeps people in darkness and ignorance. You see, that's the irony, isn't it? People think they're in the light. The irony is that if you talk to the common person out there, they laugh at you if you tell them. Like, what are you, stupid? They think you're in the dark. They think you're the fool. They think they're smart, intelligent. We, well, we know a lot about science and we know a lot about the world and, and, and I have a PhD and you're telling me I'm in darkness. Well, if you do not know Christ, yes, indeed you are. And how great that darkness is. But that's the irony that the people who are in darkness don't know that they're in darkness. Because that's what 
Satan does, he deceives you. It's deception. If you knew you were in the dark, you wouldn't be in the dark. That was all of us at one time. Each and every one of us was in the darkness, groping like blind men and women, searching. It wasn't until God found us and opened our eyes that we could sing, I once was blind, but now I sing amazing grace. Oh, darkness is much more than just ignorance. It also, it also demonstrates the evil of sin. How is sin described in the Bible? Ephesians 5.11 calls it the unfruitful works of darkness. Interesting, when you contrast that, where Paul's praying that the a Colossian church would grow and bear fruit and be fruitful in good works, right? When a Christian is saved, the idea is of bearing fruit, good fruit. But he who's dead in his sins bears the unfruitful works of darkness. Wasn't it Jesus when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane? The Romans and the Jews, led by Judas Iscariot, what did he say to them? Now is your hour, the power of darkness. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It was it was Satan behind them all. Douglas Moo, theologian, describes the dominion of darkness as people who have not been rescued by God and Christ living in a power structure that is characterized by the forces of chaos, evil, and judgment. Look at the world around you. Is it any wonder the world is, seems to be in a flood of moral darkness? They profess to be wise, but yet they're fools. We were once part of that. We were once in that flood of dissipation. We all were part of it, blind as bats. And Christ delivered us. God delivered us. We could give thanks. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for delivering me from that darkness. And that's precisely why God sent Paul. Acts 26, 16 Note, look at the, when Paul gives a, a recollection of his conversion testimony. Listen to how he puts it. He, 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 he's recounting when the Lord called him and he says, but rise and stand upon your feet, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things of which you have seen me and to those which I will appear, delivering you and your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and have a place among those who are sanctified by me. We've been delivered from the power of Satan, the power of darkness, and delivered to the kingdom of light. I remember what it was like to be under the power of darkness. It was awful. It was to be without God and without hope in this world. 
and time's darkness still comes upon me. Not darkness from God, but the darkness of evil. You could feel it. We're surrounded by unbelievers. Satan uses them to get at you, to hurt you, to destroy you. The power of darkness is real. When we realize how awful it was to be under darkness, that God has delivered us from darkness, then we ought never to live in darkness again. Look what it says in Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found that all that is good and right and true, discern what is pleasing to the Lord, take no part, no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Ah, not only do we not participate in the works of darkness, but expose the works of darkness. We're afraid, aren't we, to expose the works of darkness because the servants of darkness may get angry at us. But God has called us to that very purpose. Next, we could be thankful that not only has God delivered us from the domain of darkness, the power of darkness, but has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom of light. (laughs) How beautiful it is. I want you to think, the word transfer there is an interesting word, and and it's used in ancient context to describe in ancient kingdoms when, when, when a kingdom, let's say, conquered and vanquished their enemy, they and I'll give you the perfect example. When, when Assyria or Babylon came to Israel or Judah and conquered them, what did they do? They round up all the citizens and they transfer them to Babylon. They transfer them 900 miles away to Assyria. Well, why do they do that? Well, so that they could get rid of all possible rebels who may try to usurp their authority. They put their own people in there and they transfer them to their kingdom so they may learn the ways of Babylon and become assimilated into Babylonian culture. It, it was the way ancient warfare operated. You took a whole population, you uprooted them, and you transplanted them somewhere far away where they could be transformed into the image of that conquering kingdom. And so what's being said here is that God's people are in a reverse exile. Rather than being exiled into Babylon, the conquering king is the Lord Jesus. And we've been transferred, we've been taken out of the kingdom and domain of Satan. And we've been placed under the care and the benevolent lordship of Jesus Christ. We now serve a new king and a new new master. We've been transplanted under his lordship. And this is really the whole point of it, isn't it? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. 
What is the kingdom of God? This term that gets thrown around, Paul doesn't use it much. It's, it's a big theme in Matthew's gospel, but the kingdom of God is a biblical theme. It is the universal reign of God. Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And so the kingdom of God represents his rule and authority and majesty over all of creation. And the kingdom of God manifested and came into this world through the king, Jesus Christ. It pleases God the Father to rule the universe through the Davidic Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And through him, the kingdom of God and the rule of God spreads through the earth through his message of the gospel. You see, the message of the gospel has been really changed over millennia. The message of the gospel is not God loves you and he has a plan for your life. That might be part of it. But the real meaning behind the gospel is to announce that there's a new king. The the, the message of the gospel is that you are all rebels. That we all have rebelled against this king. And we're his enemies. And he has a right to smite us. And he's wet his sword. And he's ready for judgment. But he's offering us terms of peace. He says, come to me. Come on my side. I offer you terms of peace. I offer reconciliation. And there's nothing you could do about it. I've done it for you already. I've died on the cross for your rebellion. I bore your sins in your my place. I bore your sins in my place. And I died for you. And I rose from the dead. Believe in me. And come have peace. That's the gospel. The gospel is to come to Christ and bow before him as king. We've lost that. There is no church that I've ever been to that preaches the gospel like that. That's the gospel. It's about the reign of King Jesus. And by the way, this is not a subjective reign. It is objective. Whether you believe he's king or not doesn't make a difference. Jesus Christ reigns. That's why it tells us in Philippians 2 that on judgment day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in him. You could mock him till the day you die. You could blaspheme God till the day you die. You could live in high-handed rebellion till the day you die and say, God, you won't reign over me. I'll do whatever I want. Good, keep going. You'll find out the hard way. You will bow one day. There'll be no laughing matter either. The Bible says... That there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will be thrust into outer darkness. The realm of darkness here will only become the greater darkness in eternity. If you're in the darkness now, oh, how great the darkness will be when you die. But if you're in the light now, how great that light will be. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. It is a kingdom of light. It is very opposite of darkness. 
First John 1, I mean, John 1, 4, 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just as God spoke forth in the original creation, let there be light, and so there was, and so the universe unfolded. It is the light of God that shines forth and bursts forth in revelation. You see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. It is light in that all of it is good and pure and right. It is holy. It is a a kingdom that comes to reveal the God of the universe. It reveals God the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. It comes as light to expose the lies of Satan who has deceived the nations of the world. It comes to expose the lying promises of sin. The light comes to liberate humanity from the clutches and bondage of darkness, and it comes to illuminate the truth of God and his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can give thanks to God, hallelujah. We've been delivered from the domain and power of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, a kingdom of light. I want you to think about that because being in the kingdom of life, there lays upon us a mandate, a divine mandate. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are told, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All that, you see, brings the, the themes together of ancient Israel. We're God's people. That All that was said of Israel is now said of the church, of both Jew and Gentile. And what is this all for? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you've been called out of darkness into light, then the mandate is upon you to proclaim his excellencies. And fourthly, thankful for the redemption of Christ. Thankful for the redemption of Christ. This is last but not least, because it says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. None of this is possible without the work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, if if the Lord did not go to Calvary and be our sin bearer and our substitute and make atonement for you and I, none of this would be true. We actually have nothing to be thankful for. God has shown the greatest good to us. He's shown the greatest favor to us. What he did for us in sending his son to die for us. The word redemption, is a unique word in the Greek, it's apolutrosis. And it means to release, affected by payment of ransom, redemption, or deliverance. It's commonly used in the 
sense of a slave being redeemed, someone paying a malumission for them that they may be redeemed and set free from this slavery. You see the imagery here? This word redemption is used often in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are all slaves of sin. That is the state of natural man apart from Christ. When you're under the domain of darkness, you don't realize, but we are shackled and enslaved and chained to sin. It's ironic, isn't it? People think they're free, but they're really slaves. I often think of this when I see young people and they're, they're going to college and they, they say, woohoo, I'm free. And they go to college, they could do whatever they want. And they indulge in all kinds of fornication and drunkenness and wickedness. And they think, I'm free. Oh, you've never seen such bondage. Bondage to the flesh, bondage to sin, bondage to alcohol, bondage to pleasure. Oh, it enslaves the soul. It isn't until Christ sets you free that you're free indeed. And he paid that price. You can't pay it. Psalm 49, 7 through 9 says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Only Christ can pay that price. And he paid it with his blood. Every drop of blood that was shed on Calvary was shed for you and I to be redeemed from the slavery of sin, from the penalty of death and the eternal judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. The only one who could pay this price was Christ. Interesting, in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, Paul elaborates, he says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the earned circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, notice this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. We all have a debt, a huge debt to God. And we can't pay it. We'll never pay it. You could try, try as hard as you may, You can't pay that debt. But Christ took that record and tore it up. He nailed it to the cross. He paid with his blood. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. (sighs) Through him we have this redemption. And we could be thankful Thankful why? For it was the Father who sent the Son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. It is God who gave the Son. The Son didn't operate apart from the Father, but he only does as the Father instructs him. So we give all our thanks directed to the praise and honor and glory of the Father. Well, let me conclude. So much to be thankful for. You walk out of here complaining. I'm going to smack you in your head. 
There's enough to complain about. You can always find something to complain about. We have so much to be thankful for. And if you're saved, if you're in Christ, and you have nothing to really, you might murmur and grumble and go through difficulties, but the Lord has given us so much. He's qualified us. He's delivered us. He's transferred us. He's redeemed us. Praise his holy name. You know what the most beautiful thing is as I think of this whole thing? How can we be qualified for such a glorious inheritance? Because the Bible says he's adopted us as his children. Only a son can be an heir. Only a daughter can be an heir. We who were once strangers, through the power of the Holy Spirit now can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call God our Father. And by the blood of Christ, we can draw near to the throne of grace. We have a heavenly Father who loves us. Romans 8.30 says, if he gave us his son, will he not give us everything? He spared nothing for us. The love of God, if we only can understand and comprehend it, and I believe because of the darkness of this age and the darkness of our own hearts and the darkness of sin, we cannot truly understand and comprehend the love of God. But one day we will know it in its fullness when we shed this fleshly body and come into the heavenly presence of God and the light of his presence and the love of his countenance falls upon us in its fullness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, O Lord, for this word. Thank you for helping me to preach today. You know my heart, O Father God. You know as I was wrestling it as if Satan himself was seeking to thwart me today, Lord. But thou art good and gracious, and thank you, Father, for carrying me along. Thank you, Father, for, for the glory which you show us, O Lord. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your son. Oh, heavenly Father, in you all good things proceed. Help us to always live a life pleasing to you, giving thanks in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.